Are you sick today? Have you recently been sick? Could it be that your illness is or was due to sin in your life? Well, that's one of the issues that we're going to deal with today on this broadcast, so stay with us. We welcome you to another question and answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. So come and join us for the next 30 minutes and listen to the biblical responses to the questions that Dr. McGee received from his listeners. You know, one of them may be a question that's come to your mind recently. This program is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network. Now let's get to those questions. We begin with this letter from a listener in Pontiac, Michigan, who's concerned about the verse in Scripture which says, Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. She says, Why did God hate Esau? Well, you find that in Malachi, not back in the book of Genesis at all. God never said to Esau back in the book of Genesis that he hated Esau. He never told the individual that at all. Well, when did he say it? It's in the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. And in that interval of several thousand years, Esau has become a great nation, Edom. The Edomites were great people that were here on this earth. And they came from Esau. Jacob had become a great nation also, the nation Israel. And this is the way that Malachi begins his prophecy. He says, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, in what way hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the jackals of the wilderness. Now, when did God say that? He said that at the end, not at the beginning. Never said that he hated Esau at the beginning. God let that nation run its course and demonstrate by its wicked ways that it justified the hatred of Almighty God. And by the way, this idea today that God loves, God loves, you know, God hates too. And by the same token that God loves Good, he hates evil. By the same token that God loves that which is right, he hates that which is wrong. And so there's a lot in this world that God loves, but there's a lot in this world that God hates, by the way. That's the message of this little book here. And God waited till Esau ran his course, till he demonstrated to the world that he was this kind of a nation And God very frankly said, I hate Esau. I hate this thing that he's become, the kind of a nation he is. And that is still true today. God has brought great nations down to the dust. And he's still doing it, by the way. And as we as a nation turn from God, we're seeing that judgment is beginning to come upon our own nation a student many years ago up in Canada 
went to the late Dr. Griffith Thomas and said to him, Dr. Thomas, I'm having a problem in the Bible. And Dr. Thomas asked him what it was. He says, well, I can't understand why God hated Esau. And Dr. Thomas says, well, you know, I'm having trouble with that passage also. But it's not quite your problem. My problem is I can't understand why God loved Jacob. And friends, that's where the problem is. It's not on the other side at all. In John chapter 9, the disciples asked Jesus after seeing a man who was born blind, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So a listener in Escondido, California says, does illness come from sin in our lives? Well, may I say to you, that is not true to give that as a rule that every time you get sick, it's because you sin. But sometimes that is true. You remember John says there is a sin under death that a Christian can commit. I don't know what it is. I think it for you is one thing. For me, it's another thing. But nevertheless, there is that. But to attribute all sickness and all calamities that come to us as being a result of sin that we've committed is not exactly accurate at all. In fact, the matter is it's a pretty bad practice to use that and tell any person, regardless of what happens to them, because a lot of God's dear saints, they're on beds of pain. And I don't think you can say that at all. That is certainly a wrong premise to work on. What are the requirements for salvation? Well, that's the question of a listener in New Orleans, Louisiana. She asks, can one deny or not know about the deity of Christ and still be a Christian? Well, let me say that there is a difference between denying and not knowing about the deity of Christ when you're saved. When you are saved or come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you may not know about his deity. It's quite possible. I was not brought up in a Christian home. It was a non-Christian home. And when I started out as a young fella and saved when I was 17, I did not know about the deity of Christ at first. I needed a Savior, and I didn't recognize all that was implicated in that. And so I did not know about the deity of Christ. But when I heard about it and was taught about it, I did not deny it. If I had, I would not have been a Christian because to deny the deity of Christ is actually the same as denying the ability of the Lord Jesus to save you. Let me turn to a scripture or two. In 1 John 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. And there are those 
today that actually who deny the deity of Christ and say they're Christian, what they're doing is worshiping an antichrist. They're not worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second question this party has, can one not have a personal relationship with Jesus and still be saved? The very reason that we are saved and one of the wonderful benefits is that we might have fellowship with him. Again, John in his first epistle says, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I think that it's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit in such a way that you would not have fellowship, but you'd be living with a grieved Holy Spirit. And when you would come and confess your sin, then you'd be brought back into the place of fellowship with him so that there is a possibility, and I think it can only be for a period of time, that a person could be out of fellowship with the Father. We get many letters from people who are Christians, but they've been out of fellowship. They've been actually into sin and been out of fellowship. You can't have fellowship with him and be in sin. That is something the Scripture makes quite evident. And therefore, the normal experience for a child of God is to have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would feel myself that if I lost that fellowship, I'd want to restore it as soon as possible. I think that this is a very sensitive area in our Christian lives and that a great many Christians today are living with a grieved Holy Spirit. And because of that, they're not having fellowship with God or with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the way out of that dilemma is to make a confession of your sin. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then we are restored to fellowship. But if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie, John says, and we do not have the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. So you see that the condition for fellowship is the confession of sin. Now here's a young man who listens to our program in LaVale, Washington. He's concerned about Dr. McGee's exclusive use of the King James Bible, which he teaches from on the Through the Bible radio program. He says, I have come from a church where certain members believe that the only true Bible is the King James Version. They say that it is a sin to use any other translation. What do you think? Well, I think that it's an extreme and radical viewpoint to feel like that it's sinful to use any other translation. I do not hold any viewpoint that it's sinful to use any other than the King James. I have found that the King James is entirely adequate for me. I feel like that the problem with the King James is 
that it's written in Elizabethan English, and it's the same kind of English that Shakespeare had, the same kind of English that he used. Always like to see a Shakespeare play for one reason, and that is to see how these people take the Elizabethan English, the King James English, if you please, and how they make it live. People come there with a thousand to see Shakespeare's plays, and I'm told that some of the parts that are played by the different actors there, they practice on them for three years before they permit them to do it. Now, it stands to reason, therefore, if it takes them that long to practice and to study the King James English, that a preacher just can't get up in a moment's notice, and read the king's English. He just can't do that. He needs a little studied, wouldn't you think? I got very tired of going to different churches and sit there before the service begins, and about five minutes before it begins, the Christian education director rushes in and says, Dr. McGee, I'm to read the scripture this morning. Would you tell me what it is? And I'd tell them, and then they generally would want to know, are there any big words in there? May I say to you, that party is not prepared to read the Scripture in any translation, for that matter, and certainly not the King James. And so I have the habit now of always saying, I'll read my own Scripture, because I've at least been over it several times. And am more familiar with it than the Christian education director is. And I believe that the King James can be made very understandable. In fact, the matter is, it has a beauty and a reverence about it that no modern translation has been able to even touch. And the modern translations, many of them, have good points to them. I think that they are good interpretations, some of them. Phillips, for instance, I felt he didn't write a translation. He wrote an interpretation, and his interpretations is good. For instance, where it says, every man must bear his own burden. Well, Phillips has every man, and I don't have it exactly in my mind, but every man must carry his own load. May I say to you, it's a nice interpretation of it, but certainly not a translation. A translation is where you take one language and take the words out of that language and put it in another language in words of equal meaning. And that is not always done in these new translations because the idea is not so much to get the literal translation as to get one that is readable to a boy that's in the ninth grade. And the reason I say the ninth grade is because in Los Angeles, they tell us that in the public school, that the average boy in school can't read till he gets to the ninth grade. So that the ninth grade kind of translation certainly wouldn't be the King James. It would have to be one of these new translations. And my feeling is that the King James, if it's studied, and it should be, 
and gone into detail that you can get probably closer to the original than you can in any modern translation. And my feeling is that we're trying to make Christianity today so easy, so entertaining, so comfortable, that we are pretty much away from the Bible to begin with. We're away from all translations. And today, actually, there's a great deal of talk about having the ethics and the morality of Jesus taught without teaching about Jesus, that he's being entirely left out. And today, you hear all kinds of seminars being run to tell you how to, you know, to make your marriage work, how to be a success in business. And I've got a folder on one recently, how you can reach your highest goal. I don't know what my highest goal is. They put it like this, how you can reach your highest potential. Well, now that's very nice, but I never did get the impression from any translation that that is the great goal of Christianity. I don't think so. I think it points to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be like him. And that would be, I would think, the highest potential. The doctrines of election and free will will always be at odds when you choose one side or the other. But as this listener in Mesa, Arizona points out, how do you believe in both sides of the issue? He says, I've heard Dr. McGee say that he was a Calvinist, but I've also heard him say that he believed in the free will of man. How do you reconcile the two? May I say to you, I have no problem in the world in reconciling the two ideas. I am not a hyper-Calvinist. I believe in the doctrine of election. I believe in the doctrine of the security of the believer. But I also believe in the doctrine of free will. God created man with a free will, the ability of making a choice. And man has options every day. Every person has an option to make. Even if you walk down the street, You come to a corner, you have an option of going three different ways there, and you can go any one of those ways that you want to go. I believe that God today has given you the option of accepting him or rejecting him, and I think that is entirely in your hands. I think that the Lord Jesus Christ moved heaven and hell to get to the door of your heart. But when he gets there, he stops and he knocks, and you're going to have to open the door. He's given you that free will. And that free will is such that you can't change the direction of this planet by making a decision that would upset God's program. And so the problem of reconciling free will and the matter of election is not any problem at all if your God is big enough. But if you have a small God, you're going to have a little trouble there. Now this party goes on. It says, for some years now, I have been disturbed by the doctrine of election. My pastor once loaned me a Bible with the election verses marked, and when I finished reading them, I was in tears. They gave me the impression that God is a capricious God 
arbitrarily saves one person and lets another go to hell. How else are we to interpret a passage like Romans 9, 11 through 18? Now, I'm going to stop there for just a moment. I think that he made a mistake in giving you just the election verses, by the way. That's not the way you read and study the Bible. You don't read and study any book that way. You don't just look at one side of the problem. There is the other side that we're talking about, and they both go together. God is not a capricious God. And in Romans 9, 11 through 18, I want to say this to you. Many years ago, I gave a series of messages on Romans. It took two years for me to go through Romans. And I spent a great deal of time on the ninth chapter. That's on tape today. And if you're really interested in wanting to know a discussion of the doctrine of election from one who also believes in free will, send and get that. You can order it from our tape department. And I'm not trying to promote tapes, but I'm just saying I can't go into all of that here. But the verses that you give me are very interesting verses. For he saith unto Moses, I'm reading verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Now what God is saying to Moses, he says, I'm not choosing you because you happen to be Moses, because you happen to be a great leader. I'm not choosing you because of any of that. I'm choosing you because of my grace. And it's the grace of God that saves any of us, as you well know. None of us could be saved if it were not for the grace of God. But that grace is available. I have a notion that there could have been other Israelites that could have led the children of Israel out had they believed God, but they just didn't believe God. In fact, Moses wasn't very good at that either. God had to lead them along. The others, I think, would have turned their back on it. And I'm not sure, but what maybe some of them had the opportunity and they turned their back on it. May I say to you, you need to have a thorough study of this, not just to read a few verses in Scripture. You need an explanation to go with them. Then this part, it says, My church teaches that since man is dead in trespasses and sins, he's unable to help himself and his faith and even the desire to know God and the gifts are from God. If this is true, what's the point of praying for salvation of a loved one? If God has already determined whether that person is one of the elect or not, well, to begin with, you don't know who the elect are, do you? And therefore, we are to take the gospel to all creatures, and not all will be saved. We've discovered that, but our business is to take the gospel to all creatures and leave the rest to Almighty God. And this part, it says, I used to believe that God allowed Satan to work in the world so that man would have the choice of whether to follow Satan or obey God. Am I wrong? Yes, I think you're wrong. After all, dead men can't make any choices. No, but there's one who can raise them from the dead. And he even gives dead men ears to hear the gospel, by the way. This whole concept of election seems to be contradicted by Second Peter 
3, 9, which says that God is not willing that any should perish. Well, now that's a nice verse to put with your ones on election, is it not? It doesn't contradict. It's all in one great plan and purpose of God. As Dr. McGee mentioned, we have a verse-by-verse study which he did on the book of Romans. The complete 4 MP3 CD is a set that's called Reasoning Through Romans. So if you'd like more information on this incredible study, then we invite you to call one of our service operators for complete ordering information. Now, although the debate about election and free will has and will continue through the ages, one thing will always be clear, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe in him? Have you placed your faith and trust in the one who can save your soul from the judgment of God's wrath? because he's already bore that wrath on the cross? Our hope is that you will do that today. If you'd like more information on God's offer of salvation, please call and ask for the Salvation Packet. It includes the leaflet, The Inside Story, which outlines God's plan of salvation. When you do call, leave a voicemail request with your name, address, and the call letters of this station. Now, each week we continue Dr. McGee's five-year study of the Bible during the Through the Bible radio program heard on this station. To study along with Dr. McGee, we encourage you to get the notes and outlines for yourself. Contact our offices to purchase resources or get the notes or ask for the Salvation Packet. You can do it by calling 1-800-65-BIBLE, Monday through Thursday, from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time. Or write to Through the Bible Radio in the U.S. Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1 or visit us online at www.ttb.org. This is Steve Schwetz for the Through the Bible Radio Network, and we pray that our God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus made it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson This program's been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of the worldwide ministry of Through the Bible Radio Network.